If you travel, you know how to really go off the grid. Like no cell service in your room, off the grid. You know which remote retreats have the best herbal baths, sound baths, and ice baths. Because when you set up your out-of-office, you mean it. Because when you're the escape artist, vacation is all about resting, meditating, drinking water, and minding your own businessing. The Delta Sky Miles Platinum American Express card. If you travel, you know. Learn more at go.amex slash you know. But at that time, African-American, the African-American dollar in the city of Detroit turned around 10 times within the community before it left the community. You spent that dollar at your local chef or baker or your local convenience store or your local candy store or your local grocer. You went there and bought all of your goods. That grocer took that dollar and went, went to hire a painter to paint the outside of his building, an African-American painter who would paint the outside of his building and will um, make, a, make signage for him. And then that African-American painter would take his, that dollar and then go to a place that will allow him to package his paint inside of the barrels. And so that would be an African-American barrel maker. And so you get all of this money transferring from one African-American hand to another African-American hand and building wealth for the African-American community. That was Jamon Jordan, a former teacher turned local tour guide and avid Detroit historian. We met Jamon in front of a row of stores on a street near downtown Detroit. That day, it was pouring, but that didn't stop him from joining us in our car and guiding us through a tour of historic black sites like Paradise Valley. <laughs> hey. Come on in. Hey, come on in. Come on, on in. in. Uh, perfect day for a walking tour. Yes. Yeah. Maybe a swimming tour. Exactly. Yes, it is a rainy day, but we can learn great history even in the rain. This is Driving the Green Book from Macmillan Podcasts, and I'm your host, Alvin Hall. When my producer, Janae Woods-Weber, and I began our journey, our starting point was Detroit because of its significance in the Great Migration. In 1910, Detroit's African-American population was 1.2% of the total. By 1970, it was 43.7%. Many of these new Detroit residents were from towns and cities across the South. We know that a majority of them made trips back home regularly to visit family members and close friends who remained. By starting in Detroit and heading south, Janae and I were shadowing a drive many African Americans would have made. So, of course, African Americans are coming to the city of Detroit in large numbers first in the 19-teens. After 1914, Henry Ford offers $5 a day to all workers. And so he has built his Model T factory to create this Model T on the assembly line. And he's partnered with five black institutions in the city of Detroit to help recruit African-Americans to take some of those jobs, which really, it, with all of the faults of Henry Ford, places him as a progressive in comparison to the other factory owners who were in the city of Detroit who weren't hiring African-Americans at all or only hiring African-Americans as strike breakers. And so Henry Ford, who had at one time practiced those same things, has now moved much further in hiring African-Americans than any of the other factories and is now going to begin paying them an equal wage to the white workers. 
which is $5 a day, which is double what most factories are paying in the city of Detroit at that time. And so now you have African-Americans coming from Mississippi, Louisiana, Alabama, North Carolina, South Carolina, um, Georgia, who were working as, uh, as tenant farmers and sharecroppers in many cases, or some form of low-skilled labor and not really making that much money or, or in perpetual debt or as a sharecropper on a plantation, they're now coming to the city of Detroit making a living wage, more money than they ever would have made as a sharecropper in Mississippi. What did they do with that money? So what they did with that money is they did two things. One, they became customers of businesses they never would have been able to be customers of. And many of these businesses, of course, are African-American-owned businesses. In Paradise Valley? In Paradise Valley. The second thing is they're using their money that they have now, their disposable income, to start businesses. So, yeah, they work at Ford, but they're also starting their own businesses because they... Yeah, they, they work at, a, a, at an auto factory on the assembly line, but what they really are, are they're blacksmiths. Or what they really are, they're tailors. Or what they really are, they're seamstresses. Or they're cobblers. Or they're cooks. Or they know how to do some other skill. And now they have the money to finance this other skill, this other business that they can be a part of. And so they're starting their own businesses, many of which will be in Paradise Valley. Higher wages and skilled work meant that many African Americans in Detroit were experiencing a level of prosperity in a short period of time that was transformative. I heard so many stories during our trip about people returning south with their new cars, wearing stylish clothes, not only showing off what they had earned, but also saying, you should come north with me. You don't have to live down here in this grinding poverty. The new arrivals used the money to unleash their entrepreneurial spirit. They may have been working in factories. They may have been working as maids. They may have been working in restaurants. But they were accumulating money in black-owned banks with the idea of taking control of their own financial fate by setting up their own businesses. They saw the demand and knew the supply was inadequate. Paradise Valley in Detroit developed to satisfy the demand. Is there any of Paradise Valley left? So, Looking around here, the answer is no. Yeah, that's what it looks like. And so what happens is African-Americans, as they're becoming more and more wealthy and more and more prominent, I mean the business owners in Paradise Valley we're talking about. And again, 350 black-owned businesses either in or very close to Paradise Valley during that high period of Paradise Valley period. And so you have a thriving business district right here in the city of Detroit. Because of segregation, you have prominent African-Americans, musicians like Duke Ellington and Cab Calloway and Count Basie coming to the city of Detroit. And they're playing everywhere. They're playing in the white clubs. They're playing in the African-American clubs. They're playing everywhere. But they cannot stay everywhere. So if they're going to stay in a hotel, they can't stay in the white-owned hotels. Where do they stay? Well, using the Green Book, they stay in the upper-class African-American-owned hotels. The Gotham, the Carlton, the Carver, the Mark Twain. These are the upper-class black hotels, many of which are right here in, in Paradise Valley. Nor the Norwood Hotel is around the corner from where we are right now. So they're performing in these areas as well. And not only are African-Americans um, coming to hear them play, it's the pop music of that day. So this is, the, this is the Beyonce and Katy Perry of the 1920s and 30s and early 40s. And so whites are coming to Paradise Valley to hear them too. So Paradise Valley is not just taking in black dollars, 
it's taking in large amounts of white dollars, too. Black business owners knew that the world they were creating and the businesses, especially entertainment, would attract white people who wanted to have a good time. So in their thinking, they were pragmatic, which is not surprising given that most of them came from jobs in the South that required very common-sense skills, like being a farmer, a blacksmith, or a maid in a white household. They knew that to be successful, they also had to be savvy. And so these businesses, which don't discriminate, so they're black-owned, but customers can be of any color, they're fully integrated, known as black and tans. A black and tan is a fully integrated club or bar where black people and white people perform on stage together. They sit in the same booths with one another, and they, of course, uh, is fully integrated, and that means the cash is fully integrated. The business owners aren't practitioners of segregation. They don't perpetuate it. What Jaman helped me understand is why the car was the vehicle, pardon my pun, for black economic achievement and social mobility. For the first time, more blacks had control of their time. When they could leave home to go to work, when they could go shopping, when they could go out at night, when they could go to visit relatives. And their car was something valuable that they owned. The automobile is a center of this African-American business activity in the city of Detroit during the Paradise Valley age. Of course, having a car is very important for African-Americans. It means you've arrived. It means you now have the freedom of movement to be able to go from one place to another and to visit family. And not to endure the indignations of using public transportation, which were largely segregated, dictated by Jim Crow laws. That's right, that's right. So um, one of the important things about having a car is that it allows you to access to be able to go from place to place and not be inconvenienced or in some case threatened by what can happen to you in segregated areas. You, you can drive right through a town that you know you're not welcome in. You can drive right past a place that you, a hotel that, no, that will not serve you. You can't do that when you're at the mercy of public transportation. When I asked other people in Detroit about Paradise Valley, few remembered it. Some had never heard of it. I wanted to know what's left of Paradise Valley. So where the marker sits is one of the most was where one of the most famous clubs sat. The 606 Horseshoe Lounge sat where the marker is at the foot of St. Antoine. St. Antoine is the street right in front of us. And Adam Street. There is no Adam Street that runs this way anymore because the football field blocks where Adam Street would have been. And so this football field, all of it would have been Paradise Valley. On the other side of it is the baseball field. Most of that would have been Paradise Valley. Behind us, these businesses that are behind this, this um, office building on the left of us, that would have been Paradise Valley clubs and restaurants and shops there. And on the other side of the um, office building is the freeway. The story of the decimation of Paradise Valley repeats itself in black commercial and residential areas across America. When we visited Louisville, Kentucky, we heard a similar story from Kenneth Clay a lifetime resident and author. There was an area called Walnut Street. It's now Muhammad Ali Boulevard. But Walnut Street ran through downtown Louisville, east and west. It began up on the east side of town and went all the way to the west side. Black people lived in the west side, west Louisville area, 
you know. But this strip between 6th and 13th Street was the strip. It was the entertainment strip. It was the black business strip. You know, it was where the professional doctors and lawyers all had their offices. You know, it was like our Harlem. It was like our Bill Street. You know, and for years, that was uh, the place that I just loved to be. As a youngster, I used to go there. They had these movie houses, you know, three black-owned movie houses. There were two black-owned banks, three black-owned major insurance companies, and a whole assorted grouping of restaurants and eateries and places you could buy clothing and stuff, records and stuff. You know, in terms of the Green Book... Walnut Street, of course, was where there were some hotels. The Walnut Street area, you know. There was the Hooks Hotel over on 7th and Chestnut, a block away from Walnut Street. There was the, the Brown Derby Guest House. You know, there was Laird's Hotel. When we come back from the break, we'll hear the lengths the black communities would go to in order to shelter travelers and keep them safe on their journeys. No matter what you're a fan of, Texas has the trip for you. There's the trip to Texas and the trip. Or maybe you're the kind of fan who'd prefer a trip to Texas or a trip. Either way, go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. Why pick one city, one beach, one restaurant, or even one view? With Celebrity Cruises, you can have it all. Explore the best of Europe, the Caribbean, and Alaska with the best premium cruise line. And now get 75% off your second guest, plus bonus savings on select dates with Celebrity Cruises' semi-annual sale. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Offer applies to non-refundable fares and select sailing. Savings vary by stateroom category. Other terms apply. Visit Celebrity.com for details. Ships Registry Malta. During our time in Louisville, we visited with Mervyn Obisman, a former associate editor at The Courier-Journal. Mervyn lives on a quiet, leafy street lined with beautiful houses and apartment buildings. When we arrived at his home, he was cleaning and organizing his front porch as he waited for us. Mervyn grew up in Opelousas, a town in southwest Louisiana, and he vividly recalls the anxieties he and his family felt while driving in the South. Did you ever encounter anything that was really unpleasant? <laughs> Just going down there. <laughs> Just going down there because sometimes the idea that it could happen and the knowledge that it has happened to others made you feel awful. You were so tired when you got to the end of your trip if you were driving from watching to see if the car that had pulled behind you was a sheriff's car or somebody who was just going to irritate you, and you're driving the highway not bothering the soul, and somebody passes by and waves their pistol at you. No, that's that's not good at all. 
So when you got where you were going, you were tired and you needed rest. And then you had to think about going back to it. So <laughs> it was not nice. On the other hand, though, you met people who were willing to give you everything they had to keep you safe, to feed you, to put you in that guest bedroom they had, move Uncle Joe out so you could have the bedroom, you know, that kind of thing. And Although you weren't a relative. No, it was just the way things were done. Because somebody there would say, oh, no, 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 we're going to call sister so-and-so. We know she's got an extra bedroom because her son is in the service. And there you found your extra bedroom. Also, she would feed you. <laughs> so I gained weight. <laughs> <laughs> but to see what people were willing to do, because they knew that if we didn't make the changes, we would never ever survive. And so that was everybody's way of giving their dime to the collection plate. Janae and I decided to ask Mervyn about his home, Opelousas, Louisiana, a place he described as a small town made up of Creole people of color. And what did your family do in this town? Well, <laughs> just about everything, uh, they cooked. I had uh, one relative who had a restaurant that sold only to whites, as a matter of fact, because she did a lot of specialty stuff. And they would put their order in and go over to her restaurant and get it and bring it. I had another uncle who worked for the lumber company and was very close friend of the man who owned the lumber company. And as a result, got set up and built a motel with his wife called the Sid Sylvia Motel. That motel was one of the rare few places that people of color could stop on their way from Baton Rouge to the Texas line because they just, they just weren't any... And so at the motel, you met everybody who was coming through because they were wise enough to have billboards that suggested very strongly that this may be the only place you can spend the night until you hit the Texas line and you may not find a place after you do. Can you remember what the Sid Sylvia Hotel looked like? Oh, yes. I spent a lot of time there. Oh, describe it for us. Ah. Keep in mind that most of the men in my family on my mother's side were bricklayers. And so when they got ready to build the Sitzelvia Motel, they got together on weekends and built it. And it looked just like a regular motel, you know, with a long, you parked outside and you could walk right in. And it was right across the street from a nice little restaurant that was African-American-owned, so you could get food and find a place. And they were wise enough to have billboards on the road between Baton Rouge, which was the capital, and Texas. 
And so you would see these billboards and they would use my Aunt Sylvia's picture rather than saying, this is a motel that welcomes coloreds. They used Aunt Sylvia's picture and said, you need to come to Sit Sylvia Motel. And they showed you the route from the highway to this motel, which is located in an African-American neighborhood. And, uh, and so it was, a, you took care of each other. And in the process, what you did was you overlooked the racial problem by having your own. It may not be as fancy as the one down the street, may not be as large as the one down the street, but we were welcome because our families owned it. Whatever happened to the Sid Sylvia Motel? Well, my uncle Sidney died early, and his wife, my aunt Sylvia, ran it for a number of years, and it got to be a little difficult. And so she sold it to an African-American who lived in Lafayette, Louisiana. And she moved to California where her sister lived. And she was glad to... (laughs) But that motel had given her a nice... Retirement? Retirement and a comfortable way of life. While many communities were destroyed during the period of urban renewal and the building of the interstate highway system, there are notable exceptions all across America, primarily where well-educated, successful Black people lived. For example, in Louisville. As your career was rising here in Louisville, the Mm -hmm. area where where the majority of African Americans lived along Walnut Street Mm -hmm. was being attacked and gradually broken apart. Well, you see, there are two things on what happened there. The area you're talking about is just one of the things. But on the other side was the area on Southwestern Parkway near the river, Russell neighborhood, and what have you, where other things were happening. What was happening there? People were buying houses. Black people? Black people. Yes. That's where we lived when we, before we came down here. They were buying houses. They were taking very good care of those houses. They were out there mowing those lawns and cleaning those windows and putting new shutters in. And they stayed. And those little communities on Southwestern Parkway and and Cherokee Road, Cherokee area grew. And blind folks still are there, the majority there. And those are choice houses. How many houses you can go to in Louisville where you can walk at the end of your backyard and there is your Ohio River passing? Only down there. That must be prime real estate these days. It is. So those families that were able to scrape together that money to make those investments have really built some wealth. Exactly, exactly. And it became the place where the African-American lawyers and African-American doctors and African-American businessmen who were successful started buying. And they started on Southwestern Parkway. And they're still there today. 
These professional blacks lived in comfortable, well-cared-for areas, some of which were relatively unaffected by urban renewal. But where did they drive when they went on vacation? And did they use the Green Book? For that answer, we spoke to Mary Ellen Tias, who lives in Columbus, Ohio. She's a longtime resident of Idlewild, one of the remaining historic upper-class black communities in Michigan. The other two are Oak Bluffs in Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts, and Fox Lake in Angola, Indiana. When did you first go to Idlewild? When I was an infant. An infant? That long? Yeah, and my mother the same way, my grandmother. Um, when I started working at the Cultural Center, I was telling some people about our displays. And we have these banners, they're about a dozen of them, that tell the history of Idlewild from 1912 when it was started. It wasn't even anything but woods, but that was when the corporation set it up. And I was telling uh, my first group of people about them, and uh, I looked at the bottom paragraph of one of the banners, and it was about my grandmother. (laughs) And how she had, because I hadn't read them all. Um, And uh, I said, oh, that's my my grandmother. And explained how she happened to come. She was a school teacher here in in Columbus. And she had asthma and hay fever. And one of her friends, I think probably somebody from Chicago, said, you ought to go up into Michigan. Uh, The air is better. And it's cooler. And you, you might do better with the asthma up there. And she came and she liked it. And she took my mom, who was a baby, and she liked it enough that she kept going back. And after several years, she built a cottage around 1920 or 1921. How did Idlewild survive during the time of Jim Crow and well, restrictive that's legislation? why there was Idlewild. Explain. And when people talk about Idlewild, a lot of people say, well, Idlewild's died. And they even had a documentary on TV about 20-some years ago that said, you know, Idlewild is just a, it's a ghost town, which isn't true. It was started in 1912 for families. and African-American families. African-American families who could not go anywhere in the country and without being hassled and, and turned away. And these would be um, sort of affluent families, you know, professional families that could afford to take a vacation, doctors and teachers and lawyers and social workers and that kind of thing. So you could go to, after it was started to be developed, Idlewild. When I was growing up, that's where people went for vacation. And usually it was the moms and the kids that would go and the dads would come on weekends or for a week uh, or so in the summer because they had to work the rest of the time. So, What was a perfect day like at Idlewild? Oh, hanging out with my friends. We'd have breakfast and then everybody was turned loose. And you just, you had to be home when the the fire department had a um, a siren that went off at six o'clock. And you knew when you heard the siren that you better get home. And everybody just, you know, went home. That was it and had dinner. Then we'd get together again in the evening if we were a little older and party. Go down to the beach and and do uh, hot dogs and marshmallows or whatever, or just have dance parties at somebody's house. There was always something going on, Uh, card games or, you know, just what kids did, but we, everybody had either a rowboat or some of the boys had a boat with a motor on the back. Couldn't really call them speedboats. They were just boats with motors, but, you know, they made the most of that. And so we always had transportation. Some people rode bikes, but mostly we were on the water or in the water. And that was our typical summer. We could go up 
to an area called the island, which I'll tell you about later. But um, they had concession stands, so we could, you know, for a dollar and a quarter, you could have a hamburger and fries and a milkshake. And were these Black-owned concession stands? Yes. Everything was Black there. For these high-achieving African-American professionals, Idlewild represented the fulfillment of the American dream that they built parallel to the dream that whites in the U.S. were also striving for. And, like the overall U.S. society, there were similar entry requirements. You had to be Idlewild royalty. So, in essence, these places were havens that people returned to year after year, generation after generation, for the solace and affirmation they offered. Yeah. Did you ever miss a summer at Idlewild? I might have missed a summer the year... No, I, I don't think I've ever missed a summer. You should get your perfect attendance award. When you show up <laughs> this summer, you should say, I want my gold star there for perfect go. attendance. Except I'm not the only one. Most of us do that. You know? Well, what keeps you going back year after year? When you're a kid, you go because your family goes, but you're an adult now. This is and where you continue the tradition. And beauty and friends are. Thinking about when I missed, I did not miss, but I think I was only a few days in Idlewild the year that mom got sick and died. I just, I have to go. I feel like that's, you know, I'm tapping into life to be there, uh, even if it's just touching base. And uh, I get to see the people that I care about. Been, Idlewild has been the consistent home all my life. You know, even though it's just a couple months in the summer, this is where I, I can always come back. You know, that is home. And that is where most of my lifelong friends have always been. And I, <laughs> I have this sort of superstitious feeling that if you don't make it to Idlewild, you're going to croak. <laughs> <laughs> On this road trip, we heard repeatedly that where there were concentrations of Black people, many local governments made efforts to either remove or erase thriving African-American communities. Part of the underlying reason for this was redirecting Black dollars out of Black neighborhoods and into white businesses. The larger U.S. society, however, was unaware of the negative impact of this process on those communities because of segregation. Still, many African Americans were able to find places away from these urban areas that allowed them to enjoy their rich, vibrant lives without restrictions, if only for a summer. Just as Mary Ellen goes back to Idlewild every year to reconnect to part of her family history and part of who she is, I know families who go back to Oak Bluffs in Martha's Vineyard every summer. Their return is a touchstone, going back to a place where they are welcome, where they don't have to negotiate anything about who they are, where they are understood and can be completely comfortable. These are places where their world is knowable and safe. That's all for this episode of Driving the Green Book. Next week, we come to the end of our journey with a final episode in Memphis, Tennessee, 
we visit the Lorraine Motel where Dr. King was assassinated and learn about its complicated legacy as a symbol of both black excellence and mourning. Special thanks to Mervyn Obispin, Kenneth Clay, Jamon Jordan, and Mary Ellen Tyus. Driving the Green Book is a production of Macmillan Podcasts. It is created, narrated, and produced by Alvin Hall and edited by Juleka Lantigua-Williams. Sound design and original theme song by Cedric Wilson at Lantigua-Williams & Co. Field production by Oluwakemi Aladasui. Janae Woods-Weber is the associate producer with additional production support by Jasmine Faustino, Michelle Margulis, Morgan Ratner, Emily Miller, and Becky Celestina. Kathy Doyle is the Macmillan Podcast Vice President. Subscribe to Driving the Green Book on Apple Podcasts. While you're listening, you can also explore the road trip locations behind the show using our custom Apple Maps guide. Find a link to this experience, curated music playlists, details about my upcoming book, and more at drivingthegreenbook.com. If you'd like to share your own stories about the Green Book with us, email us at greenbook at macmillan.com. We would love to hear from you. Safe travels. to family vacations there are a million different trips you can take you can get your own trip to texas or if you prefer a vacation from your family you can always get your own leave the kids with grandma trip to texas so go to traveltexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to texas that matters yours